Amen and amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. The New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I love singing those old songs. Some of you are like, that didn't sound like an old song to me. Psalm 107, it doesn't get much older than that. So I always love that. People are like, oh, I don't like all these new songs. I'm like, yeah, yeah me, me too. Psalm 107, you know, all these other songs. But so thankful for every song we sing that comes from the Word of God. It's a blessing to sing truth. Um, man, it's just great to hear the redeemed of the Lord saying so. So thank you, praise team, for leading us well. We are in a series called Peace Love Summer, and kind of what we're going to embark on today is a three-week series in the midst of this series, walking through this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do as we study his word together. Well, the Christian life is certainly a life of maturing. We talked last week in Philippians 3 about progressive sanctification, the idea that the Lord every day is molding and shaping us into who it is that he wants us to be. But if we're honest, can't that process of growing up in Christ and maturing be pretty frustrating? Like, like we said last week, we're a lot of times like Paul. It's like, I'm straining towards the goal of the call of God in Christ Jesus, but I'm not there yet. And some days we are painfully aware of the fact that we are not there yet. Nothing is worse for me than opening a box and seeing those dreaded words, some assembly required. <laughs> like, I'll just tell you, just by the Lord's grace as I've gotten older, I've realized that I'm better at doing that now than I was when I first started working on that. Uh, but, but let me just tell you, have you ever been putting together something, maybe a bookshelf or some sort of furniture item, and as you're putting it together, you get towards the end and you've got this one piece that's supposed to go in this one spot, yet as you're trying to put it there, just like no way, no how is it working and then you realize that like eight or nine steps prior to that moment, you used the wrong piece then, and you're holding the piece that was supposed to go there now. And it's at this point where you have a critical decision to make. You can either take the whole thing apart and put it back together correctly, or if you're like me, you've got a drill, right? You've got screws. You can figure this thing out. Now, I would just invite you, if you were ever at my house, please do not spend extended times looking at the furniture there to see which pieces I made which decision on. But the fact of the matter is, I think when we dig into this section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to discover that we have possibly gotten some things out of order. And if we don't deal with it, then we're going to be in trouble. We're not going to live as we were created to live. We're not going to be effective in fulfilling our mission to reach, teach, live, and love like Jesus. We're not going to be able to uh, actually make a difference in the world for Christ. And what will end up happening is we'll kind of push ourselves and even others further away from Jesus. So as hard as this may be today and over the next few weeks, I'm actually praying that the Holy Spirit of God would expose some things in us so that by his grace we could do a little deconstruction for the purpose of reconstruction in a way that would honor and glorify him. And what we're going to discover is that indeed, as you know, if you have a church background and even just have lived in this world, it should start with love. 
So for the next three, week, three weeks, we're going to be going through this in chapter, and we're going to read the entire chapter all three of these weeks, but we're really going to hone in on one section each of these weeks. So uh, let's read the word of the Lord, starting in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, and then we'll pray when we finish reading this chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Lord, may we read and understand your word over the next few weeks, and I pray, God, that our understanding of this much-used word love would really come into focus, and God, that we would get our lives built in order, that the foundation of love for you and love for others would, would rule and reign over everything else in our lives. God, thank you for this text that you uh, have given us today, and I pray, Lord, that, that we would just give you our full and undivided attention this morning as the people of God. Thank you for what you're going to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we ought to do is, is look at the context of this passage. If we're not careful, we tend to take God's word and turn it into a kind of spiritual buffet of sorts, right? Where we just uh, go and get what we want out of it and leave the rest. But uh, listen, the, the Bible is not like a big spiritual golden corral, okay? Where you find like popcorn shrimp sitting right next to the meatloaf. Two very distinct different things, but right there together. Uh, that is not what we find in the Word of God. This is a letter, a lengthy letter, that was written to God's people at Corinth, a church there. And Paul is addressing issues that we need to understand before we understand what we find here in chapter 13. It's not as though Paul was writing this letter and thought, you know, I've really never given anybody like a really cool uh, passage to read at weddings, so I better stop down and just insert this right in the middle of this letter. Uh, certainly that is not what Paul was doing. There's a context here, and it's really quite important to understand what we find in 1 Corinthians 13. Last summer, we spent some time studying the beginning chapters of 1 Corinthians, and we talked about some of the issues that were happening within this church. Paul had spent about a year and a half in Corinth. Uh, people were saved, and a church started, so for 18 months, they did ministry together. God was doing some really cool things. If you want to read about that, that that's not something I found in some commentary somewhere. Acts chapter 18 
I always love this, by the way, the, the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, if you're like, I'd really like some background. Commentaries and all that are super awesome and helpful, but did you know that the background to almost all the epistles is found in the book of Acts? Like, you can go read how the church in Corinth started in Acts chapter 18. And this church was doing well in a lot of ways, but there were also some cracks that were starting to show. Divisions and worldly compromises were sneaking into the church. So Paul writes this letter to address those issues and challenge them on these things. And specifically in chapters 11 through 14, Paul's getting into the details of their church life. Like how they operate when they come together as the people of God. So I asked you earlier, what are we here for? In a sense, Paul's asking them, what are you gathering for? Is it for you or is it for God? They were gathering and doing some all kinds of weird things. You, we've studied before 1 Corinthians 11 where some were coming and making a meal out of the Lord's Supper, right? And instead of worshiping, they were just feeding their own appetites. And what we find in chapters 12 and 14 is that many of them were using spiritual gifts as a way to kind of build themselves up. What they kind of had done was establish like a power rankings of the spiritual gifts, like, if you have this gift, then you must be at this level spiritually. And if you have this gift, then you're really the cream of the crop in this church. And Paul says, wait a second, you're using spiritual gifts to advance yourself and build your life up, which is the absolute opposite of what spiritual gifts are actually for. Spiritual gifts actually should humble you. God has a way of using the, the unimpressive to shame the wise, right? Like, so if God is using you, can I tell you what the Bible says? You're not that impressive. <laughs> but God in his grace uses unimpressive people like us so that when it all is said and done, people will say, wow, God, God did that. So the gifts are given to build up the church and to build up the kingdom of God. So, so Paul says you're doing this wrong. Chapter 12, he talks about we are one body with many parts and every one of those parts is indispensable. So it's into the middle of this conversation, like right in the fat middle of that conversation that we find 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at the first three verses this morning. And what I want us to see is that Paul is very clearly going to say that love must be at the foundation of all we do and who we are. And in the process of that, he's going to clear up some false equivalencies that we tend to make in our spiritual lives. So let me just first set this up with, with kind of a big truth. The reality is this, the mark of maturity in the Christian life is love. The mark of maturity in the Christian life is love. Just like the Corinthians, we have the tendency to kind of evaluate ourselves and our church and our families and others with all kinds of different standards. But the reality is, unless love is at the foundation of our Christian life, maturity is impossible. We're not going to grow in Christ without love at the foundation of all we do. Without love, friends, the, the bookshelf of your life is going to wobble because things are out of order. So what are these false equivalencies that we find? We see them here in these first three verses. First, we find that giftedness is not equal to love. 
giftedness is not equal to love. Paul uses hyperbole really all throughout these first three verses, dramatic exaggerations. No one speaks in all of the tongues of men and of angels. But he says, if that was a thing, and if somebody could, without love, it is simply noise. If you had prophetic powers and you understood all the mysteries and had all the knowledge of this world, he says, you are nothing. It's plain here in the text that your giftedness does not indicate the level of your heart. Church, listen, you cannot measure love by giftedness. I think we're all familiar with ministry leaders over the years who have failed. Big scandals flaming out in ministry. There's a great danger, I think, in our modern culture with the rise of social media where, where people just are rushed to platforms at younger and younger ages. And I don't mind telling you this as a guy who was a pastor at age 26. What were those people thinking? I'm 35 now, and sometimes I wonder, what are y'all thinking? But if we're not careful, sometimes we allow our giftedness to carry us beyond where our character can sustain us. And we're given platforms, and we're given opportunities that are beyond our spiritual maturity level. That's why the Bible says very clearly that, that an elder should not be a new convert. And we see that all the time. Someone's radically saved and has an amazing testimony. And like three years later, they're pastoring a mega church. And it's like, that could not end. There's a possibility this is going to blow up. By God's grace, sometimes it doesn't. Some of you are like, that was my pastor for 40 years. Praise God, right? But for every one of those, there's like four or five others that just blow up spectacularly. Giftedness is not the same as love. This isn't just a word for preachers. You too, friends, can operate in your giftedness apart from love. You may not even be on a platform anywhere, but did you know that even using your gifts in the context of your life group, uh, holding the doors open, serving in hospitality, your discipleship groups, all of those things can be something that you do out of your giftedness rather than relying on love at the foundation of it. I call it operating on spiritual autopilot. Just kind of this idea of going through the motions. Paul says without love, it's all just noise. Like the very best things you do in ministry and life for the church or for all these other things, at the end of the day, it all sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? It's just noise. It's just, and listen, we already live in a noisy world. And I'm not just saying that because I've got four kids and a dog, but, but it's noisy. In a world where everybody is competing to be on top, everybody, everybody in the world today wants to be an influencer. And you're like, oh, here we go. He's talking about the kids again and their TikToks and the social medias. Like, can I just tell you, wanting to be an influencer is not new. Whether that be on social media or at the social club at your retirement home, everybody's been wanting to be an influencer. Some of you got offended at that. I don't care. My email is rick at crossroad.live. You write it up and send it. If we're not careful, we find ourselves using our giftedness to try to build us up instead of building up the people of God, which is why God gave us these gifts, to build up the one another's in our lives. 
So anything that we're doing with the gifts God has given us apart from love is just making noise. Oh, I pray that Crossroad would not be a noisy church. I pray that the only noise we would hear are the kids running around and having a great time and maybe the clanging cymbals back here when Rex and Greg are playing the drums for us. But giftedness is not equal to love. Second thing we see, we're going to move a little quicker now, is that faith is not equal to love. Faith is not equal to love. Verse 2, Paul says, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. This concept of faith is really tied in with this previous concept of knowledge as well. So if I have faith and knowledge of all the things of God without love, it can actually be destructive. Now some would argue at this point, well, well, is it even possible to have faith without love? I would just remind you of what James 2.19 says, that even demons believe and shudder. So certainly it's possible to believe in God, and I would say it's even possible to have faith in God, yet not be operating in love. How can you say that, Pastor? Have you been part of a local church? I've got people who I believe that they know the Lord and have faith in Jesus Christ and are saved. Well, sometimes they don't act like it. Oh, I'm the only one? That's fine. Don't look at them if they're sitting next to you, all right? And let's just be real. Y'all like it better when we're like, yeah, everybody knows those people, right? But man, if I'm honest, there are times where I'm that guy. I know I have faith in Christ, but I find myself not operating in love. I think all of us find ourselves operating outside of the love of God in our lives. So even faith and growing knowledge of the things of God does not mean that we're walking in love. I think in, in the modern church, it's one of the biggest false equivalencies is knowledge of the things of God and faith in God. And we think, well, we're growing. I mean, I'm going to all these Bible studies. I'm doing all these things. I know more than I've ever known before. That doesn't mean that you love the Lord and you're operating out of that love. So friends, check your hearts. Third truth we see is that sacrifice is not equal to love. Sacrifice is not equal to love. Now, let me just say this, just, just kind of a, a side note before we get back into this third truth here. Really, all three of these could go into that first truth, that these are all gifts. Giftedness is not love. In fact, you're going to find in different lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible, tongues, prophecy, even faith, knowledge, and now giving and sacrifice. So in a sense, these are all saying that, that giftedness is not equal to love. But specifically, I wanted to point these two out. And now we see in verse 3, Paul saying, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Friends, hear me when I say this. You cannot give enough to make up for a lack of love. Now, I don't want to get too weird here, but y'all know me. I guess I'll go ahead and do it anyway. As a pastor, when the Lord leads me to opportunities to have to engage in church discipline or just loving accountability with brothers and sisters, you would probably not be shocked to know that this is often the first thing that comes up. When I have to lovingly acknowledge that somebody, a brother or sister in the church is not operating in love, one of the first things they're going to throw out is, do you know how much I've done for this church? 
Do you know how much I've done for the kingdom of God? Do you know how long I've been here? How blood, sweat, and tears? And then, admittedly, this is not a lot, but there have even been a couple of times in my time as a pastor, not specifically here, where people have even dropped the, do you know how much I give to this church? Usually when that happens, I'm like, it's about to be zero. (laughs) I can't hold it in. (laughs) All right. Sorry about that. We all tend to act as if our sacrifice of, of time, talent, and treasure should exempt us from loving well. And again, it's easy. We, we love to think of those people who do this. Phew, yeah, who do those people think they are? But can I tell you, man, I'm, I live here. As soon as criticism comes at me, even when it's constructive and holy and right, you know how many hours I'm working. You know how much I'm doing right now. Man, I tell you, we, our church is growing so fast. We're just working so hard. Everything. Like, it's easy for us to default to the same position. But Paul says again, using hyperbole here, if we give away every dime that we have, and even if we give up our very lives but don't have love, we gain nothing. Sacrifice is not equal to love. Okay, now at this point, some of you might be thinking, all right, so uh, we don't need to use our gifts and we don't have to worry about our faith and I don't guess we have to give anymore. I would just say, whoa, let's just tap the brakes a little bit, friends. Because literally in the next verse, chapter 14, verse 1, Paul is going to say that we should desire the gifts and pursue the gifts. But actually, look what verse 1 of chapter 14 says. Notice what it says first. Pursue love. And then once we pursue love, what does it say after that? And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. This is a call to make sure that our foundation is strong. Church, we've got to get this in the right order. When we pursue love, then we can use our gifts to work for the kingdom of God. We can exercise our faith in ways that make a difference in this world. And we can give of our time, talent, and treasure to proclaim the gospel to the world. But it all starts with love. Apart from love, our gifts will not build up the body of Christ. In fact, apart from love, our gifts are useless. They can even be a detriment to the work of God. So we need to do some serious heart evaluation today. How is it that we're measuring our spiritual health? How do you measure maturity in your own life? Paul would encourage us today to measure our maturity by love. The same love that Pastor Rick introduced us to a couple of weeks ago. That double love command from the New Testament. Love God with all yourself and love others as yourself. Or as we've said it before here at Crossroad, love God, love people. Because if we don't, I just got to tell you, we will find ourselves in a dangerous place. I want to share with you the story of a church that found themselves in this exact position. And we actually find that story in the Bible. So turn with me to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. Some of you are like, this dude's about to preach a whole other sermon. It's all right. Kind of, but it's going to be okay. I'm kidding. We're landing the plane. 
So when you are in Acts chapter 18, perhaps this week you would want to read that and study about how the church in Corinth was founded. Uh, As soon as Paul was done in Corinth, guess where he went? Ephesus. And when he went to Ephesus, he spent three years there planning a church. And again, you can read in Acts chapter 19 and 20 how God did absolutely incredible things in Ephesus. It was an amazing work of God that was happening. So here in Revelation 2, we're going to find a letter that the Lord sent through John to that church in Ephesus. And we're going to see that they found themselves in probably a pretty similar place to the church in Corinth. So Revelation 2, starting in verse 1, says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's all imagery talking about the Lord Jesus Christ walking among his churches. Now here's the content of the letter, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, some other false teachers. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Y'all, this is a pretty shocking letter. At least it should have shocked you. At first you're thinking like, it actually sounds like these people are doing really good, right? Imagine being in the church of Ephesus. A letter comes to you, and uh, it's from John. It's exciting. Like, wow, this is a letter, and and we're going to hear what the Lord has to say to us. And it starts out great, doesn't it? Like, man, things are going really well in the church in Ephesus. You're a working church. He says that you are patiently enduring difficulty. You're not tolerating evil in your midst. They're not just blindly accepting false teachers, but they're testing the teaching. And they've even rooted out some false teachers. They are doing great things. They are passing all of the church tests with flying colors. If you were church shopping, don't sleep on the church in Ephesus. They're killing it. But then all of a sudden in verse 4, we have the plot twist. It says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Y'all, isn't this a picture of the church in Corinth and a picture of what Paul is painting in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3? Gifted, faithful, sacrificial, yet all the while their love had grown cold. They got it out of order. At some point, they started assuming that they were growing by their knowledge, by their sacrifice, by their good works, by their theological prowess. But the Lord came to them and said, you don't have the love you had at first. And church, this is a big problem because verse 5 talks about the remedy, but it also talks about the warning. The warning is that if you don't recover this love, if you don't build your lives on this love, Jesus says, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Basically saying the power and presence of God will be absent from your church. Friends, doesn't this concern you today? 
It does me. Because what this text tells us is that it's possible to have all the signs of a healthy, thriving church, a healthy and thriving life, yet be completely spiritually vapid, empty, and dying. Because if we're not careful, we measure the wrong things. Again, Jesus commends the church for these other things. So don't hear me saying we need to throw all that other stuff out. Jesus commends these things. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, without love at the foundation, it's useless, it's powerless, it's nothing, it's noise. Church, I don't want to be a useless Christian. I don't want to be a nothing pastor an empty husband, a nothing dad. I want to spend my life using my gifts for the Lord. I want to have growing faith and knowledge that helps me know him more day by day by day. I want to be able to pour out my life as a living sacrifice to God. And I want that for you. I want that for Crossroad. But this text is clear. It starts with love. Jesus said, remember the love you had at first. I think the problem is for some reason this happens. We, we tend to like grow up and mature out of love. Jesus says, do you remember the love you had at first? I think, about, think about it in this context, friends. Do you remember the love you had for the Lord when you first got saved? That's the love we need to get back to. And I think this seems to be a pattern that the Lord is showing us here in the New Testament. This is two churches founded about the same time that had all the excitement, all the signs of revival. Go back and read Acts 18 and 19. God was doing an incredible work. Amazing things were taking place. But at some point over time, passion became ritual. Holiness became a habit. And slowly they lost their first love. Y'all, this, this is how it works for the record. Like, I don't think, and maybe in some dramatic cases this happens, but for the most part, can I tell you, I don't think Christ followers wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to abandon my first love today. We don't do that. It starts with little choices day by day by day. A little less Bible reading becomes eventually no Bible reading, becomes no time with the Lord. Missing a Sunday here and there becomes missing most Sundays, gets to eventually missing all Sundays. And if we're honest, that's not what this text is addressing, because both of these churches were killing it with the external things. And that's even harder, y'all. Like, like some of you, those other things, like you felt that in your gut when I said those things. The Lord would call you to repent. And come back to your first love. But some of you, the issue is, you're doing all the right things. You're like giving, you're coming, you're like diving into the word. You're doing all the external things, but in your heart, you know that you are far from him. Church, the warning of this text is clear. We can waste our lives. And even worse, the power and presence of the Lord could be removed from our lives and our church call of Revelation 2 is to repent and return to the love we had at first. So next week we're going to talk about 
what this love is and how we actually live in it and operate out of it. But, but today I just want to end with one more verse from 1 John 4.19. You don't have to turn there. You can look it up later. simply says this, we love because he first loved us. Friends, can I just tell you today that God has a wild and crazy love for you. Like right now. Like some of you are like, I'm the, I'm the one he's talking about. I've abandoned my first love. Can I tell you how much the Lord loves you? So much so that you're here in this moment so that he could call you back to him. Right now, he loves you. He longs for you to experience the richness of a life lived with the fullness of his love. He doesn't want you to just go through life on spiritual autopilot. So today as we respond to him, let's just remind our hearts of his love for us so that his love for us would cause us to be able to love him and share that love with everybody that we encounter. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word today. We're thankful for the truth that it brings. We're thankful, Lord, really for a very clear word today. God, without love, we are nothing. Yet, God, we know that on our own, this love is not possible. We are not good at loving others well. But Lord, we do know that you and your word tell us that we can love because you loved us. So God, I pray that, that we would find ourselves one of two places. If somebody's in here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, God, this love really is impossible. It's not going to happen for them, but Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and giving us new life and the greatest demonstration of love ever so that we could come to the cross and have our sins forgiven and have a relationship with you and experience this amazing love. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who's never experienced that love, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that today would be the day they experience and walk in this love. Yet, God, I know that many of my brothers and sisters are like me, that they know you, they have faith in you, yet if they're honest, they are struggling today. It's easy to talk about love, but it's hard to operate and walk in love. So, Lord, would you help us? God, we just thank you for what you're going to do in this time as we respond to your word.